Hello and welcome to episode number 199 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, we speak to James Meyer, Associate Professor of Islamic World History at Montana State University and the author of Red Star Over the Black Sea, Nazim Hikmet and His Generation, published by Oxford University Press. The book is a new biography of Nazim Hikmet, Turkey's best-known 20th century poet, that draws on thousands of pages of previously untapped archival sources from Moscow, Istanbul, Amsterdam and Washington, D.C. James Meyer writes that Nazim Hikmet's life story, that of a leftist poet who had resided in the USSR in his early 20s, then returned to celebrity, repression and imprisonment in Turkey before fleeing back to the USSR in 1951, carried a larger-than-life reputation. And he says that his goal was, quote, to breathe life back into a figure who has often been treated in one-dimensional terms. The book goes beyond the simplistic romantic narratives and instead situates Nazim Hikmet within a broader generation of border-crossing Turkish communists while offering a new take on complicated Turkish-Soviet relations in the 1920s and 1930s and beyond. Before we get started with the conversation, let me appeal once again. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together and I do need listeners' support, your support, to be able to keep doing it. Since I launched the podcast back in 2015, we've published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It is extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks, and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with James Meyer. Nazim Hikmet was born in 1902 in Salonika, a cosmopolitan port city that played an outsized role in the latter decades of the Ottoman Empire. So I started by asking James Meyer to flesh out Nazim Hikmet's personal family background. He came from quite an interesting family on both sides. On his mother's side, there were a number of border crossers, people who had come from uh, Europe, in her bloodline, uh, there was a fellow named Carl Detroit or Carl Detroit, who was a uh, Huguenot from Brandenburg who had been working as on a ship and uh, the boat 
docked in Istanbul and uh, this guy, Carl Detroit, jumped overboard, stayed in Istanbul, converted to Islam and went on to become quite an intellectual figure in Ottoman history, writing books about Turkish and Ottoman history. Another individual from Nazim's mother's background was a Polish figure, Borzhensky, who uh, ended up fleeing to the Ottoman Empire after the 1848 failed revolution in Poland. So, you know, on, on Nazim's mother's side, there there is kind of a tradition of at least just a couple of people who remade themselves in the Ottoman Empire at some point in their lives. And then on Nazim's father's side, Nazim's father was a, uh, a civil servant. He worked in the Ottoman foreign ministry. And there were cases in Nazim's father's side of various family members who had worked in the palace or worked for the government, the Ottoman government, and who at various points in their careers had been in political disgrace. So, you know, this theme that that, that we see in Nazim Hikmet's life of crossing borders, but also of uh, getting into trouble with government authorities. Uh, well, these are elements of Nazim's family biography long before Nazim was born. So it's interesting to see these traits also play out in Nazim Hikmet's life. His childhood was peripatetic. His family left Salonika, moved around and eventually settled in Istanbul. And Nazim went to Galatasaray High School there. And at the end of that school phase, he went on this kind of lads on tour phase with his school friend Vala Nureddin. And this was a formative time for his character. So how did that come about? Where did he go and what was he doing? He moved around a fair bit when he was a kid. His father lost his job with the foreign ministry and undertook various attempts at business. They left Salonika when Nazim was still a young child. They uh, lived for a while in Aleppo before moving to Istanbul, which is where Nazim lived for, for most of his childhood. And then in 1921, a, a, a big change begins in uh, Nazim's life. So on the last day of the year in 1920, Nazim and his best friend from high school, from Galatasaray Lisesi, a guy named Vala Nureddin, the two of them decide that they want to join up with Mustafa Kemal's forces in Ankara. You know, that was quite the thing in 1919, 1920, early 1921 to, to go and support this growing movement. You know, that really captured the imagination, I think, of a lot of people, especially a lot of young people in Istanbul at this time. Istanbul, of course, was under British occupation after World War One, And so, you know, a lot of the book is a road trip at least for uh, the first few chapters. Nazim and his friend uh, Vala, they, you know, they travel to uh, Ankara together. Initially, they were planning on maybe working for the press directorate, working for some of the newspapers that the Kamala's forces were publishing at that time. Instead, they, they, they end up getting jobs as teachers. And so they're sent to Bolu, where Nazim and uh, Vala work for, for several months. During summer vacation, they begin to grow a little bit restless. They didn't really, it seems, like living in Bolu all that much. Uh, it was a little bit small townish, I think, for their tastes. You know, and along the way, as they were traveling through Anatolia from Istanbul to Ankara, and then back when they were in Bolu as well, along the way, Nazim and Vala meet a number of people who are either communists themselves or they're, they're people who are interested in communism. And one way or another, they meet a lot of people who, who see communism as this new, exciting political force. And Nazim and Vala, while not communists themselves at this point, they decide that they want to go to Bolshevik-controlled territory and see what communism looks like firsthand. 
they they'd heard all these things about it. It seemed very exciting, and they they wanted to go check this out. And so Georgia had just recently been taken over by the Bolsheviks. The Soviet Union had not been created yet. It wouldn't be created until 1922. But Georgian was, uh, as was Russia itself, under Bolshevik control at the time that Nazim and Vala arrived there in what appears to be about early September 1921. They're looking for the brother-in-law of a girlfriend of Nazim. And she, in fact, had been in, in Ankara. And that, I think, had been one of the reasons why Nazim and Vala had, had gone to Ankara in the first place. Nazim and Vala then travel to Georgia. They, they end up in Tbilisi. They're, they're looking for these people, hoping that maybe Nazim's girlfriend's brother-in-law could maybe give them a job or perhaps lend them some money. Unfortunately, it turns out that both Nazim's girlfriend, News and her brother-in-law were out of town at that point. What exactly they were doing is not clear. It seems that they had gone to Moscow when Nazim and Vala arrive in Tbilisi. But in Tbilisi, Nazim and Vala, they meet up with a group of Turkish communists. Ahmet Cevdet Emre, who would go on to become a pretty famous person in Turkish history for a while. He was a well-known philologist who uh, later in life would play a role in the commission of transforming Turkish from the Arabic script to the Latin script. And he's very much involved with the Turkish Communist Party at this time. Mustafa Supi, the founder of the Turkish Communist Party, was, was already dead by this point. And Nazim and Vala, they, they meet up with this group of communists at the hotel where they're staying in Tbilisi. And they decide, OK, we'll go to Batumi and work on this uh, Turkish Communist Party founded newspaper. And we'll see what communism really looks like. They live there for several years and then they end up getting an opportunity. Uh, it was really Ahmed. Javad, who uh, got the opportunity to go to a new university that was being opened in Moscow called Communist University for the Toilers of the East. And Ahmed Javad had gotten a job there as a faculty member who's going to teach Turkish there. And he'd also been encouraged by the authorities in Moscow to bring along some Turkish students who could study at this university as well. And so Vala and Nazim, as well as Shevket Surya Aydemir, who they met in Georgia, and Shevket Surya Aydemir's wife, Leman, the five of these people, they all go up together to Moscow. Moscow to work in the case of Ahmed Javad or uh, study in the case of uh, the four younger friends at Communist University. Nazim ends up spending the better part of six years in Moscow between 1922 and 1928. He returned briefly for about six months to Istanbul in 1925, but this was also a time of political crackdown in Turkey in the 20s following the Sheikh Said rebellion in March of, of that year. And so the Turkish Communist Party and other opposition parties had all been closed down in the wake of that. And so Nazim had, had fled. Istanbul in 1925, again, about five or six months uh, after he'd arrived. So in the 20s, Nazim spent most of his time either studying at Communist University or working there. He also taught Turkish there in some of his later years in the 1920s. At the end of 1928, Nazim returned to Istanbul. In the meantime, the charges that had been made against him, uh, indeed, there, he'd been found guilty of being in an illegal party and had been sentenced in absentia to 15 years in prison. There had been an am amnesty more recently in Turkey, so all of this concern was no longer there. Nazim no longer had to fear being sent to prison. And so he returned to Istanbul at the end of 1928. It's not entirely clear what exactly his intention was. I mean, he had told officials at the Comintern in Moscow prior to leaving for Turkey, he had told them that he had wanted to work underground on behalf of the Turkish Communist Party, do conspiratorial work. And then when he arrived in Istanbul, very quickly Nazim began doing things that really sort of angered communist leadership, especially Comintern leadership in Moscow. 
There had been a number of arrests of Turkish communists in Turkey in the late 1920s. And so when Nazim got there, there, there was some kind of an organization, but much of it had largely been broken up by the government. And so Nazim apparently attempted to set up his own central committee without first getting permission from the Comintern to do so. And in this context, that it was not such an egregious offense. In fact, there were a number of people who, working independently, were trying to reestablish the Turkish Communist Party. However, the fact that Nazim was doing this and not working with the permission of the Comintern, this ended up getting him expelled from the Turkish Communist Party, along with about 40 other people that he had gotten involved with in attempting to organize a new central committee and a new party organization. You know, in retrospect, a number of individuals who had been involved with this with Nazim, you know, after a few years, they admitted their mistakes and they were able to get back into the party. And the fact that Nazim never did until much, much later is something of an indication, I think, that, that he didn't really want to get back into the Turkish Communist Party after this. Um, and he stayed outside of the party really until he went back to the Soviet Union in the 50s. I mean, listeners hearing this, they might be thinking that he was primarily like a political figure. But of mm -hmm. course, at the, throughout this whole time, he was writing poetry. As you describe in the book, it went through different stages. He went through different stylistic phases. Mm -hmm. And very much he was kind of feeling his way forward during these younger years, mm -hmm. trying to find an original voice for himself. At what stage did the poetry become most important for him and the political work less important? Or is it not possible to separate the two at this stage, at least? Yeah. The poetry was always more important to Nazim. This was really the core of the bonds that Nazim and his friend Vala Nureddin had. This indeed was also what really connected Vala Nazim with Shevket Surya and uh, Ahmed Chevat as well. It was always the poetry. And thank you for getting me back on track with respect to the poetry, because one of the arguments that I make in the book was that Nazim's poetry was indelibly connected with his crossing of borders. And that whether these are national borders or the, the border between freedom and imprisonment, uh, I argue that every time Nazim crossed a, a border, his, his poetry developed in some way. And so Nazim and Vala, when they were crossing Anatolia, they both had changed their styles from what they had been back in Istanbul when they were younger. Once Nazim and Vala cross into Georgia again, and they're working for the Turkish Communist Party, their poetry changes considerably. When the two of them arrived in Moscow and they're surrounded like people like uh, Mayakovsky and Yasenin and Meyerhold, their poetry becomes much more experimental, uh, heavily influenced by Russian futurist poetry at that time. But then when Nazim comes back, even when he goes back in 1925, for that brief spell, he's very aware of writing for a particular audience. So on the one hand, his poems that appear in the communist newspaper Aydın Lik are very party oriented and hortatory and, you know, are, are, are meant to really be kind of read in a, in a highly charged political atmosphere. But at the same time, Nazim in 1925 was also publishing his works in more literary magazines in a very, very different style, both from what he was publishing in Aydın Lik and from what he had been publishing in the Soviet Union and from what he had been publishing in Turkey before he had tried traveled to Russia for the first time. So the, the poetry is always uh, changing and evolving. And one thing that I do in this book is kind of look at, you know, the circles of people that Nazim was in, in a certain place, the kind of job he had, uh, where he was publishing his works. And I try to connect changes in his poetry to his location and to the crossing of borders. And he was eventually arrested in 1938 when he was in Turkey and he was jailed for many years. Mm -hmm. He initially thought that he'd be getting out soon, but it quickly dawned on him that that wouldn't be the case. And he ended up staying in, inside for over 10 years. And he was mm -hmm. accused 
by the Turkish authorities of encouraging communist sedition in the military. But as you describe it, even behind bars, Nazim Hikmet managed to lead this manically energetic life. And he led a more interesting life than many people who walked the streets freely. And of course, it was while he was in jail that he wrote Human Landscapes from My Country, his best known work, his magnum opus, an epic poem, a great work, really, a work of historical fiction. And you make the point that that book resembles in its ambition a book that he was also translating while he was in jail into Turkish, and that was War and Peace. And you make a point in the book that they are very similar in in many ways, you know, like Tolstoy does in War and Peace. You know, that is obviously an, an account, among other things, of the Napoleonic Wars. And in Nazim Hikmet's Human Landscapes, he tells the story of the Turkish War of Independence, and both of them do it through the eyes, really, of the entire spectrum of society from top to bottom. And mm-hmm. both of them are tremendously capacious and kaleidoscopic, really. So obviously, I mean, that period in in jail was very difficult for him, as you describe in the book, but he also filled it with work and activity. Could you just describe, you know, what you learned about that period of his life, which was obviously very difficult, but was also extremely productive at the same time as well? Sure. So Nazim was, uh, he was arrested a few times in the, uh, in the 1930s, allegedly for, you know, various communist activities. Although, as I mentioned, he'd been out of the party since uh, 1929. But, you know, he kept getting arrested. And in many cases, the earlier arrests, you know, he was, he was tried in, civilian tribunals and he would get up and make these speeches and say that he well that he wasn't working for any sort of communist organization but that he had the right personally to be a communist so long as he wasn't doing anything subversive and that that appears to be the case uh, he wasn't doing anything subversive but you know and he was often being freed by these civilian courts you know, after getting up and really speaking out in defense of his freedom of conscience, that, that he had the right to, to believe in whatever he wanted to believe in. Then, uh, I mean, he spent a little over a year in prison in 1933, 34. He, he was released early from that. And then he was arrested again, as you mentioned, in early 1938. And he uh, eventually stayed in prison until June of 1950. And as you mentioned, at the beginning, he had been sentenced to 28 years in prison in 1938. But he was very optimistic uh, at the beginning when you read letters to his wife at the time, Piraye. You know, at the beginning, he has all these plans. He's trying to get in touch with his uncle, Ali Fuad Pasha, who was an important general and later on became a politician in Turkey. Nazim was you know, trying to use whatever contacts, he seemed pretty sure that he would be released early, that that he wouldn't be in prison for the entire term. And that, that makes sense because he had been arrested multiple times. He'd been found guilty on a number of occasions. And in every case, there'd always been some sort of amnesty. Even when he'd served a little more than a year in prison in the early 1930s, you know, he'd originally been sentenced to several years in prison, and then the sentence was reduced, and then it was reduced again, and then it was, and then he was released early. Even on top of that, so it, you know, it seemed pretty clear. You know, at first he thought he might be he might be getting out. I break up his time in prison, you know, between 1938 and 1950 during that long sentence. I break that up into parts of three different chapters. Because it again, at first he seems quite optimistic and energized and he's, he's trying to get out. Then it seems like he really kind of comes to terms with the fact that he isn't going to be released early, that he's going to be in for a very long time. But always during these periods, like both at the beginning when he was showing a lot of energy towards, you know, trying to appeal and get out and get released and that sort of thing. And then also later on, once it it seems kind of clear that he's he's settling in to a life in prison, like he's he's sort of accepted the fact that he's going to be there for many years. But he's always learning from people. And this is something that we see throughout most of Nazim's life. Uh, and this is, has something to do with the fact that his poetry keeps changing every time he's in a new setting. He interviewed, for example, 
many fellow prisoners who had been in the Turkish War of Independence, incorporating many of their stories into human landscapes. Of course, the, the human landscapes that was eventually finished and published in the Soviet Union in 1963, that was a different version of human landscapes from what he wrote in prison. But that's where he first got the idea for this great novel in verse that I think he saw as he was writing it for the first time in prison in Turkey, that this would be his masterpiece. And indeed, it, it reflects a lot of the stories that some of the, the prisoners that he'd interviewed had been telling him. And so, you know, this is quite interesting. And I would say of all of Nazim's poetry, it's his poetry from the 1940s after he's given up hope, it seems, of early release. And he's already been in prison for several years. And it doesn't look like he's going to be released until the mid-1960s. At that point, you know, when Nazim has his smallest audience ever, he can't publish anymore in Turkey. He's in prison at the time. And really the only people who are reading his works at this time, it's Nazim, a couple of friends from prison, his wife, Piraye, a couple of people that Piraye is showing his work to. And it almost seems like without this grand audience, his poetry becomes a lot more simple in a good way. I think it becomes uh, a lot more personal. And, you know, a lot of the sort of bells and whistles that he'd employed when, you know, say under the influence of Russian futurism in Russia in the 20s, or, you know, a lot of the, the approaches to poetry, the, some of the more political works that he was writing in Turkey in the 1930s. You know, after that, now that he's in prison in the 40s, yeah, the poetry becomes a much simpler style and and, and, and voice and really some quite beautiful works from that time, in addition to starting, as you mentioned, his magnum opus, Human Landscapes. And he was eventually released from prison in an amnesty that was passed by the Democrat Party just after mm. it came to power. It came to power in 1950. He was released in 1951. And obviously that was just as the Cold War dividing lines were going up, really. And obviously he was on one side of that Cold War. And so it's a bit ironic that he was released by the Democrat Party that was warming up to the West, striking its strategic alliance with the US. So mm. obviously uh, there was an irony in that release, but pretty quickly after his release, release in 1951. He fled to the Soviet Union and he left Istanbul in secret by boat via the Black Sea, first to Romania and then into the Soviet Union. Mm. And uh, you describe that flight from Istanbul along that journey. And you describe how Nazim Hikmet had not run to the Eastern Bloc due to some sort of naive romantic communism, although he did have that within him, but rather because people in positions of power had made life intolerable for him in Turkey. And indeed, his life probably was at risk because there were various threats on his life. And after his flight from Turkey in 1951, he was stripped of his Turkish citizenship and basically treated as an enemy of the state and he never returned. So could you just yeah. talk about, you know, how he came to that seismic decision to flee Turkey, never to return and to settle in Moscow in the Soviet Union? Yeah, well, you know, kind of the way I talk about Nazim's escape in 1951 is by putting it in the context of several other gambles that he began making during the last couple of years that he was in prison. So his cousin, Munevar Andach, with whom it appears Nazim had had some kind of romantic relationship with years earlier, Munevar Andach, who uh, begins visiting him in prison in uh, 1948, Nazim decided he wanted to divorce his wife at the time, Piraye. So that's one big kind of gamble that he takes. 
I think energized perhaps by the prospect of a new relationship with Munevar, Nazim begins for the first time in several years to really sort of actively contact lawyers and start writing government officials again. And World War II has just come to an end. Uh, you know, try to see if there could be some sort of work with respect to getting an amnesty, with respect to getting an early release, something along those lines. He begins undertaking hunger strikes. Some of his supporters and friends in the Turkish media begin writing about his case. And, uh, you know, he eventually gets released in uh, July of 1950. But shortly after he was released, Nazim was informed by the military. And it's always had been sort of the military that that was really kind of out to get Nazim more than the civilian administration of the Turkish government. It had been a military tribunal that had sentenced Nazim to prison back in 1938. He clearly didn't receive a fair trial. And it was in the military once more that was stepping in to punish Nazim after Nazim. Nazim had been freed by civilian authorities. Uh, and so Nazim was informed that he was being uh, conscripted into the military as a private. He was 49 years old. He'd had a history of health troubles. Uh, he just spent 12 years in prison. And Nazim was convinced, rightly, I think, that one way or another, he would not survive his period of military service, that either he would just die doing what young men are typically expected to do and he was he was an older fellow uh, at this time or that you know he would be placed on some sort of position where he would end up getting shot so Nazim was was very concerned that military service would not be a salubrious development for him. And it's at that time that he began looking into ways of maybe escaping from Turkey. And uh, it was his brother-in-law that had the suggestion that maybe they just take a motorboat and they could get to Bulgarian waters and Nazim could be dropped off in Bulgaria. Uh, what exactly the brother-in-law would do in this situation. I'm not, this is not entirely clear. But in any case, as they were on their way heading toward Bulgarian waters, they encountered a Romanian cargo ship. After some negotiations, Nazim was allowed to board this ship, and this ship took him to Romania, which of course was a Soviet ally at the time. You made the point in the book that existing works on Nazim Hikmet can be quite Turkey-centric, and often they have mm -hmm. had little to say about the years that he spent in Moscow, particularly the years after 1951. They're treated as almost a postscript to what happened in his real life, which was in the, his early years, his youth and his time in jail, obviously. But the difference mm -hmm. in your book is that you obviously go extensively into the Russia-based archives, and yeah. you're able to bring a lot more depth to those years. So let's dig into that now, because there is this question mark around, you know, Nazim Hikmet's approach to the Soviet Union at this time. Obviously, when he fled there, Stalin was still in power. And there's been always these questions about whether Nazim Hikmet was a Stalinist, essentially. Um, yeah. Was he, you know, hook, line and sinker, a true believer in the cause? Or was he being strategic in his, you know, public remarks? Some biographers have previously been keen to believe that he was a kind of democratic communist who actually opposed Stalinism, but you actually make the point quite convincingly in the book that actually the opposite was the case. He was actually pretty pretty comfortable with the regime, and he didn't really say anything that would uh, that would bring that into question, really. So yeah. could you just talk about that? You know, in the Soviet Union, the perception is that he became something of a lackey for the regime, a lackey for Stalin. Is that accurate yeah. and is that fair? So, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the big differences between my book and previous ones on Nazim is that I, I use a lot of the archival material in Moscow and his life in the 1920s and in the 50s and 60s when when he's in Moscow there's relatively little information there was relatively little information um in the in the published uh accounts the archives that i worked on so there's this one archive which was the it's called Argas B which is you know largely a, a common turn archive it's a party 
archives. There was a lot of information about Nazim from both of these periods, the 20s and then the latter period in the Soviet Union, uh, the 50s and 60s. And I also got to work with Nazim's personal papers in another archive called Argale, which is a literature and art archive, where Nazim's papers from you know, basically the the papers that he had, letters that had been written to him, business contracts from the latter years of his life were located there. Sources like this tell us a lot of things. Um, they tell us a lot about his life in Russia in the 20s and then again in the 50s and 60s. And they, they also kind of fill in certain gaps with respect to even what Nazim was doing back in Turkey during this 23-year period between returning to Turkey in 1928 and fleeing to the Eastern Bloc in 1951. When Nazim first arrived, so uh, Stalin uh, died in March of 1953, So, and Nazim fled in June of 1951. So it was a little bit less than two years that Nazim was in the Stalinist Soviet Union. At that point, yes, I mean, he wrote very few poems. According to uh, the Yapakredi collection of Nazim's works, Nazim published six poems in the Soviet Union during that almost two-year period between 1951 and 1953, which by Nazim's standards is very, very little. I mean, even when Nazim was being subjected to pretty much constant political pressure in Turkey, even before Nazim went to prison, he was still producing an enormous amount of poetry and prose. And it, it seemed to me that, you know, Nazim was was very good in his early years in the Soviet Union of keeping his head down. It seems very clear to me that he knew how to behave in a Stalinist society and, and that he kind of went out of his way to be careful. A number of his poems from that time do take on the style of socialist realism, of poems about tractors and, you know, very political poems about the United States and the Korean War and, you know, poems that, okay, may have truly reflected how Nazim felt about things politically, yet, you know, these are works that perhaps Nazim himself would acknowledge were not necessarily his best or his, his most interesting works. After Stalin died and a couple of years had passed, Nazim's style, he began publishing a lot more in the Eastern Bloc. His poetry was inoffensive, and he wrote uh, a number of interesting works, but most of his later poetry, I mean, his big project in Moscow in the 50s and 60s was rewriting human landscapes, which he had left behind in Turkey, along with all of his other unpublished writings when he fled the country. So he began rewriting human landscapes and changing the style as well. But then he also publishes a, a very large number of shorter works that relate just kind of more to his daily life as a meandering traveler through the Eastern Bloc. You know, he writes a lot about just kind of, you know, the local architecture and, you know, the sorts of things that, say, almost maybe a tourist would be would be writing about. This border crosser, you know, is now a permanent foreigner. And, you know, he begins writing poetry that that sort of reflects this as well. Most of Nazim's other biographers have seen Nazim as this sort of democratic communist, somebody who is pushing to sort of reform the party. I did not see any evidence supporting that view of Nazim at all. For very practical reasons, I think, you know, Nazim had an acquaintance, a friend of his from back in the days, a uh, communist university, a guy named Ismail Bilen, who is very well known in Turkish Communist Party history. He's not necessarily all that well known for people who aren't already interested in the TKP. But Ismail Bilen was sort of the leader of the Turkish Communist Party in the Soviet Union. And Nazim developed a working relationship with Ismail, 
whom he'd known from from his college days in uh, at Communist University in the 20s. And Ismail Bilen was a Stalinist. And so when Nikita Khrushchev denounced Stalin in 1956 in the famous secret speech, Ismail Bilen began searching for protectors among the various regimes in Eastern Europe that still had Stalinist leaders. Of course, Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin set off a series of events in Eastern Europe whereby so-called reform communists began challenging the Stalinists that had been put in power immediately after World War II. And Nazim Hikmet, understandably, continued to see Ismail Bilen as his political guide of sorts in the Eastern Bloc. And since Ismail Bilen was a Stalinist, Nazim Hikmet tended to follow Ismail Bilen's lead. Some people argue that Nazim took communism a hook, line, and sinker. But you also mentioned that some people, you know, see what he was doing as a little bit more strategic. I think both of those depictions make a lot of sense um, because he did believe in communism from an early age, from his early days in Georgia and certainly in Moscow. Nazim believed in communism, but at the same time, he was smart enough and I think savvy enough to realize that he had to do certain things, that he had to behave in a certain way, that his publications had to look a certain way and had to discuss certain types of themes in order to survive in the Stalinist Soviet Union. And indeed, even after Stalin dies and is denounced by Khrushchev, Nazim was still somebody who I I think was calculating, not because he was a bad person. I mean, calling somebody calculating might not sound very polite, but because he had to. I mean, he was living in kind of a, a difficult type of situation where the stakes are high. He, he definitely had a strategic element to him, but I, at the same time, I think he was quite idealistic when it came to uh, his communist beliefs. He was a complicated character, wasn't he? I mean, this yeah. late Soviet period of his life is not really very flattering. And, you know, the things that are great about his work really are the scope and the energy and the imagination. And that yeah. seems to dwindle during this time. Yeah. And he becomes a, almost a, a less interesting figure. And he was also, a, obviously, as you describe in the book, throughout his life, he was this serial philanderer, really, constantly running multiple relationships at once and then moving on. So, you know, both in his personal life and in you know what he did during these years, he was a complicated figure and quite difficult to warm to, actually. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree that he was a complicated figure. I mean, obviously, it's maybe easier to feel sympathy for somebody who is sitting in a Turkish prison for years and years and years for crimes that he didn't commit. Uh, it's you know much easier to feel sympathy for that person than for the person that Nazim was in the Soviet Union, a very privileged figure, someone who is in some ways in some of his writings serving the interests of the regime. Also, with respect to some of his activities, like when he traveled to Bulgaria shortly after moving to the East Bloc and, you know, is working for the Bulgarian government and trying to convince Turks who are trying to leave Bulgaria that they should stay in Bulgaria, and telling them all sorts of stories about Turkey and, you know, really sort of propagandizing on behalf of regimes that were much more violent and systematically oppressive than the regime that Nazim had fled in Turkey. Yet at the same time, he had been targeted in Turkey and I think for good reason felt that his life was imperiled in Turkey. So, you know, he was in a difficult situation in in the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the various women in, in his life. Well, you know, to some degree, that was also a result of life conditions that had been imposed upon him. You know, it's hard 
maybe to maintain a good relationship with your spouse when you're in prison for years. And that's not something that necessarily is going to bring out the best in a person. And it's hard on a relationship when one person is on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And Munavera Andach, who became his fifth, I think, a common law wife, was in Istanbul and and, and couldn't leave. Um, And so... It was a very difficult situation for him. But I I think the sort of personal life that he had in the Soviet Union was also an expression of of his border crossing in that the doors had sort of closed behind him in Turkey, but he still had a family back there. You know, again, it's 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 easier to sympathize with a victim as opposed to sympathizing with somebody who is privileged in in a society like the like the Soviet Union was but at the same time you know a lot of the decisions that Nazim ended up making they were the result of situations that he had not created himself and of being put under enormous pressure by the Turkish government and then being put under various types of pressure in the Soviet Union as well. Obviously, a quite different kind of pressure from what he was experiencing in Turkey. But nevertheless, he realized that he had to act in a certain way, he had to behave in a certain way. And both his Turkish life and his Soviet life, he was quite an interesting figure, but he's one who always had to struggle with conditions that had been imposed upon him. And just to conclude, let's talk about one of the key overarching themes of the book, this idea of borders, not just Mm. the border between East and West, between capitalism and communism, but borders in general, which you say remained the feature of Nazim's poetry for his whole life. You write, Mm -hmm. quote, Nazim had mastered a variety of styles while spending time in a series of places. The voice Nazim had created was the offspring of his border crossing. Nazim came into his own as a poet only after he had begun traversing frontiers, and border crossing is indelibly imprinted within his poetry's DNA. Had Nazim never left Istanbul, his writing career would have been a very different one, and likely not nearly as memorable. More than any single factor beyond sheer talent, it was Nazim's border crossing that made his poetry great. So could you just talk about this aspect, you know, what it reveals about his work and what it meant at different times of his life to be border crossing? How did that enrich the work that he was producing? You know, I kind of begin, and this is where I see Nazim as having a lot in common with others from his generation, is that this this group of people who were born at the turn of the 20th century and who, like Nazim, came of age in the early 1920s, these were, in the in the case of people like Nazim in Istanbul, these, this was the last generation of Ottomans. And I argue in the book's introduction that, you know, people saw empires differently in imperial times, especially late imperial times, compared to how borders would be seen by nation states like the Turkish Republic from the late 1920s onward. And and this is what I, I found interesting about Nazim right away. This is why I wanted to write this book. It wasn't just because there were archives in Russia that nobody had ever worked on before. It was because I, I, I found the story of this person who grew up the first few decades of his life, the border between uh, Turkey and, well, the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire, and then Turkey and the Soviet Union was relatively open. And I wondered, like, what would it be like to be part of this generation that had grown up seeing the border as a source of opportunity, but then once they began approaching their late their late 20s or their early 30s, the borders start closing behind them. The doors start closing behind them. So that was something that I found very interesting about not only Nazim's just daily living activities, but, but also his writing. And I, I began looking more and more at different ways in which his writing changed every time he crossed a border, whether that's the border between Istanbul and Anatolia, when he and Vala are heading out on their own for the first time at age 19, trying to get to uh, Mustafa Kemal's capital. 
you know, or you look at the poetry that they were creating in uh, Georgia when they first become influenced by the Turkish Communist Party, the poetry that Nazim was producing in Moscow. And, you know, every every stop along the way, the poetry that he wrote changed. And I think that had a lot to do with changes in environment. And the first several stops that he made in his life, his poetry was largely, you know, largely an imitation of other people's works. When he was very young uh, in Istanbul, you know, it's clear that that he's emulating the works of people like Zia Gukalp, Later on, when he's in Moscow, he's emulating the style of Mayakovsky and other futurists. But then when he gets back to Istanbul, when he in the 1930s, when he's being harassed a lot by the Turkish government, it really seemed like that. Starting there, that's when he starts coming into his own. Really, in some ways, I would say culminating with really beautiful works that, that he publishes in prison in the 1940s. So the border crossing element is something that I thought was very pertinent with respect to Nazim, but I think it's also very pertinent with respect to a lot of people of Nazim's generation, which is why I call the book Nazim, Hikmet, and his generation, because as an historian, I'm interested in more than just taking a life and discussing that life in isolation in the manner of a traditional biography. This is just kind of what happened when I was starting to, to work in the archives in Moscow. Is I realized that there were all these other people that I'd never heard about, people who didn't go on to become famous poets, Turkish communists who, like Nazim, had wound up in Moscow and tracing their lives over the course of the next several decades in parallel with Nazim's life was something that that just started to become increasingly uh, obvious to me, is that this isn't just Nazim's story. This is the story of Nazim's generation. And by looking at it this way, okay, yes, another biography of Nazim Hikmet, but at the same time, what I hoped to do with this book was write a book of world history as well that would tell us something about changing attitudes with regard to borders and the people who cross them in the 20th century. That was James Meyer. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 199. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. And you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.